Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Todd Walker. Todd played second base in the majors for 12 years and was also part of LSU's 1993 championship team. Todd, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. You're welcome, man. Well, Todd, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Well, I had a group of kids that all liked baseball uh, the most. You know, I mean, as you grow up, if kids around you are playing football, you're going to play football. If they play soccer, same thing. And for my little group that ran all the way through our senior year in high school, we stayed together, same age. Everybody liked playing baseball, and that to me was the funnest sport, especially for practice. And, uh, you know, I just started playing at age five all the way through. Were you playing other sports as a kid? Oh, yeah, and I think that's important. You know, that becomes a big issue nowadays where everybody tries to be real sports-specific. Um, I was doing everything except for, you know, the basketball season, I was playing soccer. So when the school season would start, it's football, then I'd go into soccer, and then baseball pretty much February through the end of the summer. You know, down here in in Louisiana, you know, in the south, you can play. You know, the weather gets pretty good around mid mid end of February all the way through, so... Do you think that the over-specialization with kids is a problem? It seems like whenever a kid shows any promise in any sport now, that just becomes their immediate focus full-time. And I, I think it might be good for kids. When I was in high school, the best athletes played football, basketball, baseball. They ran track. They seemed to be playing a different sport every season. Then maybe in, in the summer played their favorite or their best sport. But it seems now when a 12-year-old is good at basketball, they just make them play basketball year-round. I wonder if that's hurting all sports. You know, I don't know if it hurts anything. I don't think there is a wrong answer there. The only thing I would say, having been more focused on that over the past couple of years, because I've coached a 10-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old travel team baseball, and then I coach a high school team, is that if you get sports-specific, these kids will tell you they love it. I mean, they love playing 120 games a year in baseball and only playing baseball when they're 10 and 11 and 12. By the time they're 17, what I've noticed is they they don't like it anymore. You know, they burn out. They they've they've stopped playing, and that's not 100% of the kids. It's probably just most. Um, and so I think 100 games is too much. I think just doing one sport kind of steals your childhood. I loved, you know, when when you and I grew up. Uh, uh, you know, we would do everything. You know, you played football when it was football season, soccer, baseball, whatever it is that you like to do. But you did a lot of it, you know, a lot of different activities, and I think that's good. And, I, I look, I love for kids to be better in, in, at, at one sport, you know, and the, the only way to get better is to, to continue to do it. You know, the age-old do, deal, spend 10,000 hours at something and you become an expert. Um, but I think that's for older kids and something more specific, probably um, when you're in college. You know, when you get to college like I did, that's when it was all baseball for me from that point forward. But prior to that, I was playing three or four different sports, having a great time, and I think you learn a lot from each individual sport. So I don't know if it necessarily hurts you to play one sport, but uh, it definitely, you know, it definitely helps to keep it diverse. That way, when you when you are a junior and senior in high school, and baseball, for example, is what you're best at, um, you're not burnt out, and you you still enjoy it. So you're playing high school baseball along with other sports. When do you realize that baseball could be something? of a profession, that it's not just a recreation anymore, that it is something that you might be able to pursue as a career? Yeah, you know, I think as a benefit to me was that I never looked beyond where I was at. So in other words, I never was thinking one day I want to play in the major leagues. I just loved playing the game. And so when I was 15, I, I loved playing on the American Legion team we had here in Shreveport and Bossier City and uh, played that for a few years along with my high school team and just enjoyed doing it. But like I said, I also played soccer and I also played football in high school. 
and it's a great thing to to be on the the varsity football team in high school. You know, it's just a, it's just a unique, great experience, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. Um, but I got a letter from LSU when I was in high school, specifically about baseball, and you know, I figured that was the best sport for me, and um, you know, didn't get much of a scholarship, but a little bit, and that allowed me to uh, to go to LSU and play, and uh, those three years were the best three years of my life, so it worked out great for me. Um, but, uh, you know, I think you you gravitate toward what you're best at, you know, and for me it was baseball. Now, did your time at LSU overlap with Shaq's at all? Yeah, actually, Shaquille O'Neal was a junior when I was a freshman. And so all incoming freshmen had to be in study hall. As a junior, I guess he struggled a little bit with grades, so he was in study hall. So I remember, you know, interacting there for that year, or at least the, the semester that I was in it. Um and then it was interesting because, you know, you'd see him on campus. He'd be standing in the LSU quad there, and uh, all his buddies would be up on benches, and he'd just be standing on the ground so they could see him eye to eye. You know, I remember those, I, I remember, you know, those type of deals. Uh, I also remember <laughs> him driving down, driving down the little road there uh, that splits campus, and uh, uh, the front window was rolled up, and the back window was rolled down, and that was Shaq in the back seat driving his car, you know, so – those two stick out of my mind the most, but it was great to be around guys like that. Of course, Chris Jackson, you know, uh, um, you know, there were some great athletes go through LSU, so that was that was a lot of fun, man. When you get into college, it's such a blast, you know. Uh, you graduate with you know five, six hundred kids, and all of a sudden you're in a school of twenty six thousand. Um, you know, to me, it was it, like I said, it was the great three year, greatest three years of my life. What was the talent jump like going from high school baseball to playing at LSU? Well, it was huge. You know, I mean, uh, my my parents always used to grind in me. There's one of you on every team, you know. And I think in high school um, that was probably the case. You got, you know, you got some great players in high school, but there's only one or two on every team. You get to a Division One high level deal. Every position is the best player on their high school team. And it was, I think, in those type of situations, you can talk about playoffs and other scenarios that you get placed in. It either makes you way better or way worse. And for me, it elevated me to a level that I didn't even know I was capable of going to. I was surrounded by some great people. And then the old cliche, you know, you're only as good about, you know, you're only as good as the people you're surrounded by. And so for me at LSU for my three years, 1992 through 1994, um, I was surrounded by a great team. You know, a lot of, a lot of baseball knowledge. Skip Bertman, who was there forever, and now of course Hall of Famer, and you know the field is named after him in Baton Rouge. Uh, taught me a lot about the sport, and you know we had a lot of you know a lot of great players come there during those times. And of course LSU won the national championship four times in the '90s. So um, the program speaks for itself. But I was just very blessed to be a part of it. You were drafted by the Minnesota Twins in the first round of the 1994 draft. What was that day like for you? Oh, I was outstanding. I mean, you know, again, I never I never said one day I want to play in the big leagues. I just enjoyed playing baseball. Um, but once you start, I guess in college, after about my second year, I started to realize I might have a chance to play professional baseball. Um, and so I, uh, so I was, uh, you know, started to focus on that. And, uh, you know, for me, um, uh, that is when it became a reality is, you know, when, when you actually get a phone call, um, from some scouts saying that, you know, they're interested in you and they're, they're watching you and you see them in the stands. And that's when all the pressure and kind of all that stuff starts creeping in because, you know, you start to realize you could actually do this for a living and it's a great opportunity that not many people have. 
And so, but yeah, that day was fantastic. We were actually in Omaha for the College World Series. I get a phone call from the Minnesota Twins as the eighth pick overall. Me and Russ Johnson were sitting in the same room. He was drafted in the first round also that year. That was 1994. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great. You get to play a game for a living. It's, uh, it was fantastic. So it's 1994, the year before you're coming off a college championship where you were named MVP of the series. You're a top 10 pick in the first round of the draft. What were your expectations of yourself and of what your career would be at that point? Well, I don't know if I could ever place expectations on it because I didn't know what to expect. You know, um, I was just living day by day and, you know, I didn't know who I'd see. And of course, the talent level even gets better when you get to A and double A ball, you know, uh, um, I remember, uh, you know, in that draft, for example, Jason Veritek was a sandwich pick in the first round, 1994. Uh, Nomar Garcia-Parra was the 12th pick overall. I was the 8th pick, so I got that going for me. Uh, Josh Booty was the 5th pick that year. Paul Wilson was the number one pick overall. Um, so it's interesting to see where guys ended up, you know, and then you could pick out some more in that particular draft. Uh, Jay Payton, I think, was a little later. Great player. So, um, so, but yeah, when you get into pro ball, man, you're just trying to survive and it's an everyday grind. You know, you're not used to that in college. You're playing three or four games a week. Now all of a sudden you're on the road out in the middle of nowhere away from your family and friends. And it truly is a job. You know, you're trying to, to fight, fight your way up. And, uh, there's a lot of, you know, you know, a lot of, a lot of fight, fighting and slashing and, you know, whatever it takes to, uh, to make it to the next level. And so it's an eye opener for sure. Um, and of course, when you look back, you'd have done a lot of things differently, but, uh, but it went well, good enough for me. I struggled at first, but baseball is a struggle, you know, it's a failure sport. And so if you learn to deal with it and survive it, um, only the, only the strong survive, especially in baseball. Uh, so I was able to do that and had a great time at AAA in Salt Lake city. And then got called up August 31st of 1996, I believe. And, uh, uh, what a great, great experience that was. Tell me about that day, your first day in the majors. Well, we were in Edmonton, Canada in AAA ball, and I got, you know, the manager calls you in. I had the same manager for, for a couple of years, and he was real happy for me and, you know, said you're going to the big leagues tomorrow, and it's just, uh, you know, it's surreal. I mean, you know, you just you can't believe you're actually going to be on the same fields now as the guys you've watched on ESPN, like Roger Clemens and uh, Wade Boggs and Bernie Williams and, you know, all these great players, and uh, Cal Ripken. And I still remember when I got to the big leagues, you know, you're in such awe, you can't even perform like you're capable. You know, you strike out, you go running back to the dugout with a smile on your face. You're just happy to be there. And it was tough for me initially for that reason. I just loved the ballparks, the amount of people that show up, the, the uh, you know, and I'm 22 years old at the time, so, I mean, I'm still young. Um, I get on third base, and Cal Ripken says, hey, Todd, how you doing? And that kind of stuff just, you know, I remember, I remember, I still remember it. I'll remember it forever. But it just, you know, it overwhelms you. And I think until I was there for a while, um, it wasn't until later I was able to feel comfortable and kind of do what I was capable of doing. But uh, the initial part, the, the call up and all that, was just fantastic. When you were in the minors, you got off to a bit of a slow start, but you never really had a bad season. You consistently hit for a good average. You got on base frequently when you were there. What did you see as your biggest obstacle to making the majors? I think just the grind, the daily grind, playing every day, you know, waking up every morning, you know, it seems like Groundhog Day and just doing it over and over again. Everybody's got a talent, you know, and I always said, you know, errors, for example, especially on the infield, isn't from a lack of uh, talent. It's usually from a lack of focus or a lack of concentration or, you know, just, just for the 150th day you're still out there playing, you know, stuff like that. 
Uh, I guess occasionally you could have bad hops, but you know, uh, but really it's just it's just staying in it day in and day out, fighting that grind, fighting that failure. Like I said, I mean, you can go 0 for 25 in the in, in the minor leagues and still be a, a really good hitter. And unless you have somebody telling you that, it's very difficult. I've always said these hitting coaches, as you get in Double A, Triple A, in the big leagues, are more psychologists than they are actually teaching you how to hit. Because the reality is, if you've made Double A or Triple A, everybody's got a good swing. You pretty much know how to hit. It's the it's the guy telling you, man, you're 0 for 30. I get it, but you hit 10, 15 bullets, and it's going to turn around, and you're a great hitter. Um, you know, pitch sequences, stuff like that, is what they teach you. But um, again, I'm most proud of the fact that I just grinded through, you know, days when I was, you know, sitting on an 0 for 25 and I'd made a handful of errors. And I, I still remember AAA going to a drive-in movie and just um, sitting there watching about three in a row, just thinking, you know, I was depressed, man, because I had some bad weeks. And I was just like, man, I'm never going to make it. Um, and I was by myself, you know, and there's nobody around really um, to help me out. So, um, but you got to fight through it. And, um, you know, I guess, like I said, I'm most proud of the fact that I fought through that, those times. And now I get an opportunity, like I said, to coach these, these young kids and, and, uh, and kind of teach them those type of things that they'd have no idea about, um, nor would they even have a chance to understand, you know? And, uh, um, and so that's, that's been fun for me. You mentioned hitting coaches trying to teach you pitch sequences. How are they doing that? Are they trying to have you pick up on the pattern of the pitcher? Yeah, I mean, based on what the guy has, and you know, I think I think initially when you're in high school, you just you basically see the ball and hit the ball. And as a as a hitting coach now, you know, that's kind of what you tell people, man. Don't make it too complicated. See it and hit it. I don't think I ever understood pitch, pitch sequences, you know. Uh, and that means like if they throw a fastball up and in at you, whether it's a ball or a strike, the next pitch is probably going to be low and away or some off speed on the outside, trying to back you up, move you around, um, th- those type of things, you know. Um, and I didn't understand that. I just went pitch to pitch and just, you know, I'm looking for just about anything. If you can narrow it down and what they call an educated guess and understand more about what pitch is specifically coming based on who you're facing, what the situation is, what he likes to do. A lot of pitchers with a guy in scoring position likes to throw a lot of off speed, you know, stuff like that. If you have that information when you're at the plate, um, you're just that much better off. Because like I said, most everybody has great swings in the minor leagues. It's understanding pitch sequences and situations and what that pitcher's trying to do to you that makes the difference. And uh, I think I grasped that pretty good pretty early and uh, was able to put all my pop, which isn't much. I mean, I'm six foot, 175 pounds, you know, um, on that ball right when you make contact, you know. So you're making solid, strong contact each and every time instead of giving bats away. Who was the guy that helped you transition from being a minor leaguer to a major leaguer? Was there a veteran on the Twins that helped you out? Well, I struggled when I got to the big leagues for the first time, although I was around Paul Molitor. Um, I think just by watching him, if I had to do it over again, man, I would have gotten picked his brain and really talked to him more than I did. But at the time, I think I was just, my mind was on so many different things. And uh, But I would watch him by example. You know, Chuck Knobloch, I played with him. Um, those type of guys that... Uh, just by example, watching them, I think I just kind of picked up on some things. Um, but, you know, I was nervous, had a real long swing when I first got to the big leagues. And um, really all that stuff I just talked about, I didn't have any – any. I wasn't applying that in any of my bats. I just was up there trying to hit a home run, try to get on ESPN. <laughs> uh, and that didn't work out too well for me. But once I got back up and really, like I said, started applying all that stuff, you know um, – then I was able to, you know, um, have more consistent at-bats, which in turn makes for a consistent average. When you first broke in, those Twins teams in the mid-'90s, they weren't too good. Was that the first time you experienced losing regularly? 
Yeah, it was, it's it's tough. You know, uh, they always say baseball is a team sport played by a bunch of individuals, and what that means is it's kind of both. Uh, it's kind of like golf, where you're kind of on your own and you're kind of trying to, you know, hit for an average and and do things individually. But it's a team sport, meaning you win and lose as a team. And so, you know, uh, that's tough. Uh, it's tough, yeah, because in AAA we're actually pretty good. Uh, the Minnesota Twins kept sending down a lot of our our their best, you know. Uh, the best AAA guys, so they'd come back down to AAA and just dominate. So we'd run through games an hour, 45 minutes, uh, um, nine innings, and you know some of our pitchers, Latroy Hawkins was one of them, um, Scott Klingenbeck, um, you know all these big league pitchers were down with us at the same time. Pat Mahomes, and uh, the, you know they'd just dominate when they'd come down. So yeah, to go to the big leagues and have a, you know if I'm not mistaken, I honestly think uh, uh, 1996 they had like a, you know. 12 to 15 million dollar payroll total and that's in comparison to what the yankees now 245 million whatever it is yeah 200 um, plus yeah 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 so see we didn't we did the uh, carl pola was the old owner um um there that you know we just they didn't spend money so in turn we had a bunch of young kids that were trying to make it they called it a youth movement but the reality was i think they were just trying to save money because they weren't drawing drawing well and they weren't making a lot of money um, and so we would get beat up every night. Not only that, we had the old umpires that were still intact until 19, whatever whatever that was, um, when they got a whole new wave of young guys in there. And so you're facing Roger Clemens as a 21-year-old kid. You're not going to get any calls. And, you know, uh, he'd throw it four or five inches off the plate and get that call strike three, and there's nothing you could do about it. So it was very tough. Uh, Torrey Hunter, you know, got sent down back to AAA with us. So I keep thinking about all this, these names, and at one point, I really believe we had probably the best AAA team ever. You know, you had Corey Koski, uh, Torrey Hunter, Doug McKavich, um, myself, um, and those pitchers that I told you about. We had a strong group for a few years. What adjustments did you have to make to your swing and to your hitting mechanics in general uh, during your rookie year and after your rookie year? I think the simplest part about that was just to be quicker. You know, what I teach now is, you know, the whole thing revolves around keeping your eyeballs still. And if you can keep your eyes still, then the ball doesn't dance when it's coming towards you. Uh, but that's difficult to do because you've got so many moving parts in a swing. You know, you got to try to keep it as smooth as possible. So I think I, I was able to keep my head more still, try to be quicker, um, and not worry so much about home runs, but just try to make solid contact every time, being okay with hitting singles the other way. You know, if you can't hit the other way, I don't believe Gary Sheffield, there's a few examples, but I don't think you, if you can't go the other way, you can't hit for a high average. And so I, w- I was content with hitting a base hit to left field. You know, kind of, you know, I played against Tony Glenn, uh, who called that ball between short and third in the 5.5 hole. Um, that little base hit there, I, you know, once I was given in to that ball, um, I started to learn what hitting's all about. And um, so for me, uh, I just became quicker, keeping my head still and making, you know, making your swing as simple as possible. What about in-game adjustments from one at-bat to the next? What kind of adjustments are you making to a pitcher who you're seeing the second time or the third time around? Well, that's a great question because hitting's all about adjustments. You never go up and just do the same thing every time. It's a big chess match. Whatever happened to your first at-bat affects your second at-bat, especially if you're facing the same pitcher. But in the big leagues, they're paying attention. So even if you're not, uh, that guy that comes out of the pen knows what you did against the, you know, the first guy. Um, but usually you are facing a starter at least three times you know, before you switch. So, you know, if I go up there and whack at the first pitch, whether I make an out or, you know, uh, or get a base hit, the next time up, that first pitch probably not going to be close to the plate, and he remembers that. And so you've got to adjust. I can't be aggressive every single time I go to the plate um, because it ain't going to work out too well for you. 
So for me, it's all a chess match of, you know, okay, you know, I'm going to take a bunch of pitches, my first at bat, get the tempo going, you know, be content, like I said, go up the middle the other way. And then maybe that second at bat, you know, different scenario, he may pump one down the middle and I'll hit the first pitch, you know. So you got to just kind of, and again, it's not a guess, but it's an educated guess on when they're going to split the plate, what they're going to throw, if that guy's throwing a curveball for a strike or if he can never throw it for a strike. You just got to know the situations and the pitch counts um, and the um, and what they throw in each count. Frank Catalanado came on recently, and he was talking about how he used to keep a notebook on all the pitchers he faced, and he would compare notes with some of his teammates. Did you used to do something similar? Well, that's another thing. See, I, I did early on. But what I found out was any given day, any pitcher can be off with what he has. So, see, what I would do is I'd have a, I'd have a book on, well, let's say Roger Clemens. The way he threw me as a left-handed hitter was different than the way he threw right-handed hitters. So you had to watch the lefties. And on lefties, he threw the fastball away, and he threw a forkball. Very rarely did he throw his slider, which was really good. And very rarely on me did he ever come in. But, you know, if I faced him on one day and he came in a bunch and he was hitting that inside corner, I'd write that down. Well, if you faced him a month later or more, you know, it's a six-month season, that day he may not have an inside fastball, and I'd be looking for it because I wrote it down and seeing how good it was, and it would screw me in the ground. So I just stopped doing it. So what I started doing, though, was watching a pitcher's last start, which was the most recent, five days ago probably. They, they throw every fifth day. Um, and get some information on other left-handed hitters that had faced that guy. In Colorado, that was our routine, is we would stretch inside in the locker room, throw the music on, and they'd throw the pitcher for that night on the screens, and you'd, able to, you'd be able to see what he did. And, again, I would focus on the left-handed hitters facing him and see what he did his last start. And that, that seemed to work best for me. But ultimately, you do what you did growing up. You just face them at the time you're facing them. Um, the guy right in front of you in the batting order, you pay attention. Um, and if you're lucky enough, if you're facing a starter more and more in the game, it becomes more of a hitter's advantage. You know, And that's why I always tell my kids, man, take a lot of pitches your first time up. See what he's got. Let the other guys see what he's got. Get your tempo down. And then you go from there. Um, but that seemed to work best for me. The book thing I didn't like because, again, you could write down he's got the, the most, the greatest curveball ever one time you face him, and the next night you don't know. He may have a busted finger or something, and he doesn't have it at all, and you're looking for it all night and never throws it. You mentioned playing in Colorado. The Twins traded you in 2000 to the Rockies. Tell me about hitting in course. Well, when I was there, it was great, you know, because initially in 2001, 2000, it was still flying out there. It was a huge outfield. You know, they transitioned from Dante Bichette and those slower outfielders to really quick outfielders because they realized how big that outfield actually was. There are a few balls I hit off the end of the bat and the gaps that just kept going. So it was definitely an advantage and definitely different. You know, a lot of pitchers would say the curveball wouldn't break as much there, just that thin air. Um, so that in turn meant it was easier to hit. Um, so it was great. But years later when I went back as a visitor, you know, they started talking about using these balls out of the humidor. And, you know, it, it definitely was different. Um, but Coors Field was a great place to be in late 90s and early 2000. Um, a lot of, lot of action, a lot of money pumping in through there, and a lot of people coming out. It was great. When you get traded, when you're still a young player, you're, you're only a few years into the twin system at that point, and they trade you to the Rockies, does part of you feel like they gave up on you? Well, I, a lot of that was my fault as well. As a young kid, you know, a lot of times I popped off in the paper or some other things that now looking back, you know, was the wrong thing to do. Um, but I was a kid, immature, and a lot of the reason they moved me on was because I, you know, basically, uh, you know, 
beat up that whole situation. Um, I'm not taking full blame, but most of it was. And, you know, um, I think, it, you know, when you're a player, you do what you're told. And I tried to do that for three years in that system, but I kept getting sent down. I didn't feel like it was fair. And eventually I just, you know, had enough. Um, but, you know, again, looking back, I wish I could have been able to fight through all of it, stay in Minnesota. It's always better to stay with the initial team that drafts you because there's a little loyalty there. Once you get moved, it's hard to stop that train. And, of course, I got traded three or four times before I was a free agent after my sixth year and got to choose where I wanted to go, which ended up being, you know, Wrigley Field in Chicago, um, which was fantastic. But, yeah, I mean, uh, um, it's very difficult to get traded because you feel like the new kid at school and it's tough to tough to compete and it's tough to, you know, you feel like you got to impress everybody. And then, of course, if you jump leagues, that's tough as well. Before you were in Chicago, you found your way to the Red Sox in 2003. Tell me a bit about your time in Boston. Well, that was great, too. And I was driving from Colorado back to Louisiana. I remember we pulled off on the side of the road about 8 in the morning just to take a quick nap uh, right before we finished the last three or four hours of the trip. And I get a phone call real early from uh, um, Bowden, who was our GM at the time with the Reds, and he had told me I'd been traded to Boston. And my initial thought was, this could be the end of it for me, man, because you have one bad year in Boston, you get blackballed from everybody. And I, that, that's, that was my thought. Whether or not that's true or not, I'm not sure. Um, but I also remember thinking, man, everything's magnified. If you, if you play well, they'll love you forever. But it's very difficult to play well in baseball. So if you don't, um, you know, shoot, I might have to move to Siberia. So I, I, remember, initially, <laughs> I remember initially being very um, spooked about the situation, but man, it was fine. You know what actually helped is uh, Pedro Martinez opened up the, the season for us at home. He didn't do well, gave up nine whatever runs he gave up and got completely booed out of the stadium. And I thought to myself, if they can boo Pedro, I'm, I think I can handle it, you know, if, if that were to ever happen to me. But luckily, things went pretty well for me. Um, hit 283 that year at a, you know, 40 doubles or whatever. 13 homers, 85 RBIs, had a great group around me there. I think we set records offensively in 2003 for Boston. Um, so it was a fantastic deal, and as it turned out, um, we kind of set the table for what happened the next year, and that means, you know, we lost game seven of the championship series, the Yankees, in 2003 when Aaron Boone hit the home run mm. uh, off Wakefield in the extra inning game. Um, well, let's talk about that game for a minute. Tell me what you were thinking as a player when Grady left Pedro Wade in game seven. Well, I've had that question asked a bunch. I always loved Grady Little as a manager. I thought he was perfect for that situation because uh, that season because he was, you know, country. Uh, he came across as, you know, being able to just let stuff run off his back. Um, you know, and in Boston that's important because, you know, you're going to get a lot of crazy stuff thrown your way. I thought he did a fantastic job. I think when we gathered around the mound when he had come out to see Pedro, and it is Pedro Martinez, I didn't think for one second he was getting pulled because, you know, you got to go with your horses. Um, the only thing that contradicts that is later, I didn't know he was at 125 pitches or whatever he was, and that's a lot. Not only that, in that, in that series, uh, and not only that, the, the division series against Oakland, our bullpen had barely given up a run. So they were just, you know, fantastic. And Wakefield, who ended up coming in and giving up the, the ball to Darren Boone, wasn't even a close, you know, he wasn't even a bullpen guy. He was a starter that you just got thrown in the pen. So Mike Timlin and Scott Williamson and uh, Byung Young Kim and some of these guys we had in the pen were fantastic. You know, in the, in the postseason of 2003, I didn't, I didn't really factor all that in. You know, I just thought it's Pedro. 
Uh, we're still up in this game. You know, he actually, we had two outs and two strikes on Jeter in the eighth, and then he hits one to Trot Nixon that barely gets over his glove, and that kind of opened the floodgates. But I had no idea his pitch count was so high. But other than that, you know, you got to go with your, you, you know, you got to go with your horse. What was the attitude in the locker room after Boone hit the home run? Well, it was. It, I think it more made it even more dramatic because we ran out on the field to the start of the bottom of the 11th, and it was the first pitch. And they had just put Aaron Boone in. I don't believe he would have been able to hit any velocity because he was struggling, and that was the reason he wasn't starting. He was struggling. But they put him in against you know, Wakefield. It was great. Um, but, you know, sometimes when that, that knuckle doesn't dance, it's just going to float. And it became a softball to, to Aaron Boone at the very first pitch. So we ran out there, took the ground balls, got ready to start the inning, First pitch gone and the game's over and your season's over, so it was it was strange. But you know when you get back in the locker room and you know you see guys crying, I mean literally crying. You know I mean a lot of people I think have concerns that people even care at the big league level because of the money they made. But I, I'm here to tell you, you know in that clubhouse in 2003, everybody for the most part was devastated because we we really felt like we had a chance to win the whole thing. We felt like we let the city of Boston down, and for them. They were getting let down just about every year, you know, and it, and it, it was it was tough for them, I'm sure. Uh, I felt worse for the fans than I did myself or anybody else, and and we were in New York for that game. So when we flew back to Boston, you see trash cans turned over, many riot-looking places, you know, and it just broke my heart. So you know, again, I felt like we set the stage. Most of those players were back for the next year, had learned a lot through the postseason of that 2003. And we're able to just let it. They were able to pull us, pull them, pull them through in 2004. I wasn't able to be a part of that, but I was very happy to see those that were. Did Pedro or Grady Little say anything to the rest of the team after the game, or did everyone just sort of sit there in silence and go on their own way? Yeah, it was kind of. There wasn't much except the, the the things you might expect. You know, you guys were had a fantastic year. You're a great team. You know, a great bunch of individuals. I remember uh, Todd Jones actually getting up in front of the bus and saying, you know, I had a chance to to sign with Detroit, and I made the right choice. And I think, you know, Detroit, I think, uh, I don't know, I can't remember what happened. They they were doing well. Actually, I think you might have said Miami, because Miami, of course, was sitting there waiting in the World Series for the winner of our our series. So I think he said he had a chance to sign with Miami, um, and he made the right choice. So, you know, stuff like that were being said, and it was just a great group of, great group of guys. You know, I was very lucky um, to play with those guys, Nomar and Veritek and, you know, Billy Miller playing third base for us and uh, the team that we had, um, um, Pedro, you know, it was just great. You're listening to Todd Walker. You can give him a follow on Twitter at ToddWalker12 and visit his site, ToddWalkerBaseball.com. Todd, you played your career in what is commonly referred to as the steroid era. Let's talk about PEDs for a little bit. When did you first start to hear about players using? Well, that, and that becomes an important point, what you just said, because I didn't hear about it till. Later on, when people started getting tested and it was a positive, you know, that was 2003. Prior to that, I just thought, man, I must be on the wrong weight program. All these other guys, you know, I'd see Barry Bonds look like, you know, he looked like he was the biggest human being I'd ever seen in my life. Um, And I didn't know it was possible to get that big, you know. And I'm not saying Barry Bonds took steroids. I'm just saying that, you know, some of these guys were just enormous. And, uh, you know, but I was never introduced to it. You know, I've always said that, you know, my wife hates when I say this, especially on air, but, you know, if I was a 21-year-old kid and a 30-year-old veteran making $20 million came up to me and said this made all the difference in my career and in my life, I would have had a hard time saying no. You know, if he said, you take this with the knowledge that you have and the talent that you have, um, 
it would have been a, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd been off to the Hall of Fame, you know. And I, I actually, I would never take steroids. Uh, I'm glad I didn't. Looking back, um, but as a, as a young kid, of course, you know, I would have, I would have probably done it, especially because somebody coming up to you that you respect, somebody that would have been, you know, famous and popular and all that good stuff at the time. Um, and it would have made a difference in my life. There's no doubt. It's a wonder drug, man. It, I mean, it, it gives you power. It gives you, you're fearless. You recover faster. I mean, just all these things, man. Not to mention the performance. You know, you run faster. You, you know, it just does everything for you. I mean, um, the downside is basically what they would tell us in spring training every year is it turns men into girls and it turns girls into men. And that's something I didn't want to have happen. So, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I stayed away once that became a, uh, a big issue in the big leagues. Plus, early on, I felt like I was fine. You know, I'd been playing well and, you know, hitting well and never was confronted with it, ever. Nobody once came up to me and said, you know, um, this will change your life. And, again, I'm thankful that they didn't because, especially when I was younger and immature and probably didn't know a lot about it and that it wasn't getting tested in the big leagues, I probably would have done it. How do you think the era affected you? Well, it affected me a lot, you know, and I'm not saying any other second baseman took it, um, but I could I could venture some guesses out there. I mean, I was hitting 10, 12, you know, I think my high was 17 home runs uh, in a year. I hit 40 doubles, 35, 40 doubles for about four or five years there in a row, and those doubles are home runs if I was stronger. Um, and when you're hitting 30 home runs playing second base, you're making $10 million. I was making, you know, one and a half to two. Now, don't get me wrong. I've, I'm set for life, and the one and a half million that I made, uh, you know, each year was, I mean, such a blessing. I mean, who, who can you can even you know imagine that? But, um, but again, uh, you know, if you're being greedy, and you know, if I'm thinking greedy, um, it made a huge difference in getting jobs, you know, um, getting signed to long-term contracts, all that good stuff. Players who have been connected with steroid use or even suspected of steroid use are not making it into the Hall of Fame, not even Bonds or Clemens. Do you agree with that decision? Yes. Yes, but again, I mean, I don't know if either one of them have been convicted, have they? I mean, I mean nobody even really knows for sure. We can all have some strong guesses on the on the subject. Um, you know, I can go a step further and kind of agree with, uh, I can't remember who said it. I think it's the guy from the Dodgers. Um uh, um, that said, man, if you're busted for this stuff, and I'm a big second, you know, second chance person. I love giving people second chances, especially if they didn't know the first time exactly what was going down. But I tell you what, it's a, there's enough knowledge of, out there to know if they get busted for that stuff, that'll be banned for life, man. And and I, I just think that it's just wrong for the sport. Um, in other words, what I mean is, if I if my only threat is to be suspended for 50 games, like just went down a few weeks ago with a bunch of guys. But yet, in turn, I can sign a $10 million deal. I'll take that trade off. You know, it's just the punishment doesn't fit the crime, in my opinion. But um, and, and I'm speaking from 10 years of having to compete against at least some, um, you know, that were doing it. And, uh, you know, it affected my career. I'm still very proud of my career. I was on the Hall of Fame ballot last year. Um, and just to be included in the 35 best baseball players in the world that are eligible for the, the ballot, um, that's an incredible thing for me coming from where I came from. Um, but that being said, you know, it's just, uh, um, uh, they've said for years, starting about 2003, we're going to test for this stuff. And if you're found guilty, man, you know, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to hit a punishment. But again, even as we speak in 2013, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Todd, I want to ask you a bit about some of your former teammates and contemporaries and get your impressions on them. Tell me a bit about Manny Ramirez and his approach to hitting. 
Well, first of all, he was a fantastic guy. I enjoyed being around Manny. Um, what most people don't know is when I'd show up at the ballpark for spring training at, uh, you know, we had to be there. I think we had to be on the field stretching at 9 o'clock. So, you know, most guys would roll up about 7.30. Uh, I'd be rolling up about that time, and not a day went by that I, I would just get there. And Manny's already fully dressed with his little hidden coach in the cage hitting every single day. That dude just, he was strong. Uh, and he was very knowledgeable. He doesn't come across as being very knowledgeable or smart, but he was wicked smart, man. And that dude um, understood, um, you know, that box and that plate and how to hit and situations and hitting behind runners and stuff like that. He was a consummate professional when I was around him. Um, he had fun, which is hard to do. I mean, it sounds easy. Go out in big leagues, have fun. But when it's your livelihood, it's it's very difficult, especially with the stress. Uh, and he had he had a lot of fun. You know, I played against him back when he was MVP candidate every year for the Cleveland Indians. And he was in the middle of the lineup with David Justice and Sandy Alomar and Roberto Alomar and Albert Bell and all these guys. I mean, he was just he was the best hitter of all of them. And uh, it was it was awesome playing with him in 2003. You played with Griffey Jr. in Cincinnati. As a fan, it was sad to see him constantly injured there. What were you thinking as his teammate seeing him struggle? Well, he just struggled with the injury because when he was there, he didn't struggle at all. He was great, you know, and uh, I'd say the same things about Ken Griffey Jr. He was awesome. It was fun to be around him. I always knew even when I was there, this would be a story I'll be able to tell for the rest of my life that I got a chance to play with Barry Larkin and Ken Griffey Jr. And now Adam Dunn and Sean Casey, Aaron Boone, you know, all these guys. I mean, it was Cincinnati. My year in Cincinnati was just fantastic, and those guys were incredible people, but but great baseball players, you know. Um, um Jose Rio, you know, on the mound. I mean, all these these legends, man. I mean, it was just uh, it was a lot of fun. Danny Graves was on that team. Was our closer. You know, I played against him in college in Miami when he was at Miami. Um, and so, you know, it was just uh, it was awesome, awesome playing with Ken Griffey. He did struggle with the injury a little bit, but he wasn't out much. You know, if, if he was out with us, that was 2001, 2002. It was only for a small period of time. It wasn't like half a season or the whole season. So I got a lot of chance to see him play and be on the same field with him. You faced Roger Clemens 55 times in your career, and you had good success against him. You hit him really well. Tell me about your approach against him. Well, for, for Roger's tough, man. I mean, you got to be real patient. Uh, you're only going to probably get one pitch to hit, if that, any, any given at bat. So I just I tried to pick the fastball out that would be anywhere around the plate and not miss it and make solid contact. And generally, I was able to do that. He never, like I said, he never came up and in on me and never brushed me off, never threw any sliders. So I had it narrowed down to a fastball and a forkball. Um, and, you know, when you can narrow the pitches down and, and kind of pick your spots, it makes it a lot easier. And I never like to use the word easy in the big leagues because it's all very difficult, but it makes it less difficult um, when you can narrow it down and have a better idea of what's going on, even if it was the first pitch. But I thought he'd split the plate because I was the leadoff hitter in any given inning. I was going to go after it because, like I tell these high school kids, I like being patient. I like taking pitches. However, if you're facing a strikeout guy, he's a strikeout pitcher for a reason. And the deeper you get in the count, the more trouble you're going to find. So um, generally with Roger Clemens, the first pitch I saw that was anywhere close, I, I tried to make solid contact and not miss it. You hit lefty. You had to face Randy Johnson seven times. As a left-handed hitter, when he's so tall with his release point and how fast he's throwing, did you even see the ball coming in? Well, you're trained to see that ball, but the problem is when he's so tall and big, you try to cheat. 
And now that I know what I know, having those seven at bats, I wish I would have stayed back and, and hit that slider because, you know, that's at 88 miles an hour. That's hittable. But if you're looking fastball at 96 and he's coming in on you, and he did come in up and in a couple of times, which is kind of spooky, um, and then he throws that slider, you got no chance. So I wish now looking back I would have sat on that slider and the first one he even put anywhere around the plate, I would have been able to, you know, make contact. And I think I made contact out of the seven three or four times. I think he struck me out three times, maybe four. But, uh, you know, I think I think that's the same deal. You know, your mindset is you, you have certain approaches against different guys. And with, if, with Randy, if I was facing him tonight, having remembered those at-bats, I would have sat back on that slider every pitch. If he threw a fastball, he'd just take it. And the first slider he threw out over the plate, I would have tried to make you know real good contact. But I, but I, I took the approach of trying to get that fastball. And man, you, you know when you do that, um, it's just too difficult to hit at 96, 97. And then like, like you mentioned, I mean, as big as he is and his arm action, and it looks like he's basically right in front of you, it makes you want to cheat, and you just lose all your mechanics with him, and then you just, you know, it just makes it tough. Prior to your retirement, you'd been playing baseball your entire life. How do you come to grips that you're no longer capable of playing professionally anymore? Yeah, that's such a great question because, you know, you never really even realize you're playing with the best in the world. You never stop to think about that until you're finished, you know. And you can replace that stuff a little bit. Like, I play a lot of tennis now. I play, you know, right when I finished, I was kind of competing on a little golf circuit here, the amateur golf tour uh, around Louisiana, you know, not doing very well. But, you know, that kind of replaced the competitiveness and, you know, get out there and work at it. Um, but I had a lot further to go with golf and tennis than I did with baseball. You know, at that point, you've worked to the point where you're one of the best in the world. Um, and that was tough to replace. There's a lot of stuff that I'm glad that I was done, like the travel, um, just a lot, you know, over 10 years. Early on, it's a lot of fun. Like I mentioned, when you're young, 22, 23, 24, it's a great time. When you're 34 and you've made your money, it just, it's, you know, your kids are at home going to school and your family's gone, it makes it, makes it a lot more tough. Um, but for me, um, there were a lot of things I missed, a lot of things I didn't. So ultimately, when I was when I chose to retire, um, I was happy with it and content with it. And uh, you know, there were there were a lot of dreams and nightmares, I guess, if you will, that I that I would think that I was back playing. You know, I I, I dealt with that a lot. Um, and then you wake up and you're not. Um, but uh, but overall, I mean, it was it was the right decision for me. I'd played full tenure, you know, ten years, and uh, happy with that. And the teams and the players that I got to play with, I mean, just a dream come true for me. You've been listening to Todd Walker. Todd played second base in the majors for 12 years and was also part of LSU's 1993 championship team. You can give him a follow on Twitter at ToddWalker12. Todd, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, thank you, man. Anytime.